and Stanley tries to answer the question. Now, the question doesn't mean anything. everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen and Jackson Nikolai, it's good to have you back. I'm back. We spent a week apart as yep. I did an episode with our special guest, Dr. Patricia Ralph. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back to last week's episode. Listen to Dr. Pat and I talk about The Seagull. It's a great play. She's a great person. It's a great conversation. Go check that one out. But I am happy to be back with you talking about another favorite. Uh, Famous, famous play. Yeah, I'm grateful to be returning myself, having turned in papers and used the break well, but I am too glad to be jumping into a great discussion. I'm looking forward to this discussion, at least, about a terrific play, a a theatrical historical play, even. That's right, and uh, a play about a time uh, about being scared in some ways, about <laughs> uh, feeling trapped in some ways, about uh-huh. not understanding the world you live in in some ways, a- yeah. and so a play that perhaps, in some odd way, speaks into the world that we're in right now. Yeah, some of those themes resonate for you all out there. <laughs> we haven't oh. mentioned the name of the play, and I'm going to put that off one more because I want to. <laughs> tell you, Jackson, I, I'm a fairly avid podcaster, as I know you are. Um, love to listen to podcasts. And I am noticing that so many of the podcasts that I listen to, it's clear that the people who are doing the podcast are used to being in the same room with each other. And now they're having to record from their homes or from hey. separate studios. And it's changed the way they interact and the yeah. way that their conversations kind of flow. And they're adjusting to that. And we have been doing podcasting via Zoom for as long as the podcast has been alive. So there's almost no change for us in how we move forward. Little did we know we'd been training for this moment our whole lives. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this moment right now is a conversation about Mr. Harold Pinter and his famous play, The Birthday Party. Yes, The Birthday Party by Harold Pinter, an absurdist play. Um, I don't know how, I don't have the number in my head. Maybe you do, Jacob. We've done a couple absurdist plays, but not a whole lot so far. No, I don't know exactly how many either. This is definitely our first Pinter play. And so it's taken four seasons to get to him. Look, there's a lot of playwrights out there and a lot of great plays. So (laughs) I'm sorry to those of you who feel like we've done wrong by not reaching Pinter until near the end here of season four. But we're here now, and we will come back again. There's a lot to do and a lot to talk about. But Harold Pinter is an incredible writer. He's written some incredible stuff, and we're glad to be here. I did just mention, and we do want to let everybody know, that we are reaching the end of Season 4. We're into just the last few episodes. Yeah, yeah, we are just got a couple left. They're going to be a powerhouse couple of episodes. Um, I mean, re- really starting with last week with uh, Anton Chekhov and the Seagull with the conversation last week and on through the end of se- the season. I'm really excited about these conversations. We have a lot of like, like uh, really important pillars of theater to talk about by the end of the season. 
Absolutely. And so what will happen is just what normally happens is that we'll finish our season out here in a couple of episodes. We'll take a break for a while and then we'll be back with you at the beginning of season five. We'll let everybody know via social media and all the things that we do when all of that's happening and coming. But just so you know, we are headed into the last couple episodes of season four, short break, and then we'll be back at you with season five. In the meantime, if you would please head on over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. We know many of you have already headed over there and you're already supporting the show. Huge, huge, massive, massive thank you for that. Those of you who are supporting us, you are the reason why the show is able to continue. We love to do it. It just takes a lot of time to do and it takes money to do. And while we love to talk about scripts, we love these conversations, we love the people who listen and interact with us after the show, it would be hard to continue doing that without the support of those of you who've headed over there to patreon.com slash no script podcast and become supporters of the show. If you haven't yet, head over there, check out how the different tiers work. It's a monthly amount that you agree to contribute to the cost of production. The lowest tier is just $1 a month, $12 a year total. I love to say it. I know so many of you listeners out there would just hand me $12 if I walked up to you on the street and asked for it. So if you'll just take the extra step of doing it through patreon.com slash no script podcast we'd really appreciate your support once you become a patron you get access to patron only posts over there which includes sort of a, a previews of what scripts are coming up we release them the week before they come out but if you're a patron then you get to know several weeks in advance what all the different groupings of scripts that we're doing are so that's one benefit as well as we like to post about art about poetry about cool videos and scenes from plays that are out so we, we like to keep our patrons uh, inundated with content over there. So head on over there and support the show if you can, please, and a big old thank you. Yes, thank you all so much, all of you who have gone over to Patreon. We couldn't do the show without you, so thank you all for your help. And uh, we'll see you over on patreon.com slash podcast. And now, back to the script. Back to the script. So I drew the short straw, I've decided. <laughs> for this <laughs> we, this is a, we had a texting conversation before this episode. We were figuring out who's going to be in charge of the context part and who's in charge of the synopsis part. And there was some disagreement about who drew the short straw on which end. If you know the birthday party, you know why there was some discussion about that. <laughs> And we'll see. We'll see what what all comes of it. But uh, this play is an absurdist play. Now, I have a long history of reading absurdist plays and throwing them across the room. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, I like to understand things, and absurdism specifically tries to get you to not understand things. That being said, uh, both in college when I first read uh, The Birthday Party and now, amongst the absurdist plays that I have uh, thrown across the room, this one only made it a couple feet away. Um, I <laughs> I do enjoy this script, um, and it is a good example of a lot of absurdist elements. Um, the There's the uh, ambiguity in general, ambiguity of time and place, identity within this play. Uh, we'll get into that more specifically when we get into more of the synopsis and the themes of the play. Uh, however, this play was written by Harold Pinter, of course, in 1957. Uh, it was first published in London by Encore Publishing in 1959. The first production aired in, uh, in London at uh, the Lyric Hammersmith Theatre in 1958. 
Um, I, I kind of glanced through some of that original cast. None of the names jumped out to me, at least. But this play is uh, done over and over again. It's It was done as recently, at least in the list that I'm looking at, uh, in 2018. Um, and that was at uh, the Harold Pinter Theater in London. And then previously at, at Steppenwolf in two, 2013 is the, the, the one that I have uh, right before that as well. So uh, this, this is... Uh, a play done often and and often well. Uh, the the characters the the kind of there's there's a a theater of menace is a term that I want to or a comedy of menace is a term that I want to introduce here as it will come up in our conversation. Comedy of menace has this uh, kind of foreboding, this uh, ambiguousness again. It's like a subset of absurdism, um, which uh, kind of sets tone uh, of of. Not quite fear, but specifically menace throughout the whole play. Something's wrong, you don't know what's going on, and uh, you're trying to figure it out. That's what this play does quite well. Uh, and, and, and in the broader uh, canon of theater, this play exemplifies the comedy of menace. So, uh, Susan Hole's merit, she she does done some writing about theater theory and work, and she talks about this comedy of menace as the idea that uh, it enables the committed agents and victims of destruction to come on and off duty to joke about the situation while oiling a revolver. <laughs> I love that image. That's just on the Wikipedia page about comedy of menace. No, no hard work was done there to find that quote, but it is a. It's an interesting way to think about the comedy of menace. Interestingly, Pinter throws that term out the window. He really does not like his plays being called comedies of menace. And in interviews, uh, he he pushes back against interviewers who use the phrase, although it is pretty well established in, in theater theory about Pinter's work. In fact, the birthday party itself is kind of the example play of what comedy of menace is. It's a, and the phrase itself is a play on, of course, comedy of manners um, and just a different kind of comedy and a different kind of look at what exactly is going on in these pseudo-humorous situations. I mean, yeah. the, the phrase itself is odd, right? Comedy of menace, something mm-hmm. that's supposed to be funny, and then the word menace, which is not funny at all. It's right. <laughs> violent and terrible and fearful, but apparently there's humor about that, and, and th- that does exist in the birthday party, no matter what Pinter says. Right. There is humor in the violence of this script, in the terror and the violence of the script. That is a fascinating thing to compare to a comedy of manners as well, because the whole the the whole through line of a comedy of manners is about uh, people observing the rules. And in a comedy of menace, it seems to be kind of systematically people starting with the rules and then devolving the rules and the kind of horror at seeing the rules being left behind. Or, or that like some of the menace, especially in the birthday party, we're jumping ahead a little bit, is that the characters don't understand the rules. Like yeah. they're they're in situations where they seem to have no understanding of the framework that's been created around them. And that is part of what puts them in these fearful, menacing situations where <laughs> violence might be done to them through words, through psychological torture like we see in the play, through real violence like we see in the play. All interesting. Let's quick give the the uh, synopsis <laughs> first. So the birthday party is of course about a small home in a seat side town it's 
maybe a boarding house, maybe not a boarding house. Uh, it, there's certainly a border there. And whether that's because this is, uh, as some characters think, truly a boarding house that's like on the list of best boarding houses in the seaside town, or as other characters think, just sort of a place where somebody managed to rent a room by happenstance and is not truly a boarding house at all. We don't really know. But the home is owned by Meg and Petey. They're an older married couple in their 60s. And they, their border, their long-term border, been around more than a year, is Stanley. He is probably a former pianist, a former musician of some kind uh, that is, for some reason, down and out on his luck, not playing piano right now. He doesn't seem to have a job at all. Uh, there's some discussion later in the script about maybe he has a business, maybe not. <laughs> Who really knows? Um Meg and Petey's boarding house is visited by two men who are looking to rent a room, is their claim. This is Goldberg and McCann. And Goldberg and McCann are there to menace Stanley. Pretty much. <laughs> They're there to <laughs> interrogate him. They, they have some sort of information. They're there to do a job. We learn that about the guys, and the job involves Stanley somehow. In fact, when Stanley is told early in the play that two men are coming, he seems to immediately know who those two men are and why they might be coming to this particular house and seems to be afraid of them. Um, the birthday party feature of the script is that it might be Stanley's birthday, <laughs> might not, um, but they're going to celebrate his birthday regardless of what he says about whether or not it's his birthday. So Goldberg and McCann, after having shown up, decide that they're going to throw Stanley a birthday party. Uh, and so the in late in Act 2, there's this party thrown amongst all the characters in the play except for Petey, who's off playing chess. And... Um, in the midst of all of this, Stanley is interrogated by Goldberg and McCann to the point of uh, losing his mind, losing his ability to speak and hold any kind of identity. He's sort of tortured into insanity via uh, severe interrogation. Uh, that sounds pretty terrible, and it is, but uh -huh. it's also very funny. Again, that comedy of menace, of violence, of attack. I don't know exactly if you if you agreed with Pinter and you didn't want to use the phrase comedy of menace, how you describe the way that the the terrible destruction that is done on Stanley is simultaneously very funny and very engaging to watch. In the final scene of the play, Goldberg and McCann are going to air quotes here, take Stanley to a doctor. Uh, which really means haul him away somewhere. We don't really know where. Uh, Petey is the one who observes that this is happening. Um, Meg does not know that Stanley is taken away, at least at the end of the play. Now, that was not a very good synopsis of all the things that happened in the play, because <laughs> this play is full of actions. I tried to catch the broad sweep of the major points to understand how the story develops, but if you read any synopses of the play, there's lots of minute actions that occur. It's, it's quite an action-packed play, actually. So many things happen, and so many of them are related, not related to what is going on in that larger sweep of Goldberg and McCann hunting this person named Stanley for some unknown reason. Now, all the times where I said maybe in that synopsis, <laughs> that's why why we were arguing about who drew the short straw because <laughs> I, a lot of the synopsis is just like this could be happening I guess yeah <laughs>
yeah, you all can weigh in on a, a, on your opinion as to who got the short straw. But I <laughs> but I agree as as like a way to kind of lean into that. That's I believe exactly what this play is trying to do. That ambiguity that like you you hear one thing from one person, another person contradicts it. Sometimes the same person who said it contradicts it. Um, there's there's a pretty often when this conversation is is had, there's a pretty uh, definitive line from Stanley where he says, "I used to play all the world over. I used to uh, play piano. I used to play piano all the world over, or at least I played all through this country." And so right away, just like in one sentence apart, Stanley himself contradicts himself and that happens between characters within characters throughout the play so it's hard to it's hard to know at a given time beyond just what seems to be real it's hard to like know any facts the word that is used a lot is unverifiable so much of what the characters in this play claim is just simply unverifiable we have no idea whether they're telling the truth or not And uh, we don't know whether they even know what the truth is or not. And as you just said, they often contradict themselves. One of the classic examples from the script is, what in the world is Goldberg's real name? I think we're fairly sure it's not Goldberg, uh, (laughs) but he goes by Nat some of the play, but then when he's telling these wildly romantic stories from his past. And I I mean romantic in the sense of art, not in the sense of it being about a girl or anything like his relationship. But he tells these just sort of nostalgic stories from his past. And he says, oh, my name, when he he tells those stories, his name is always Simi. Mm-hmm. But then he tells another story later in the play about him and his father where his name is Benny. Right. And the characters are always commenting on this. Like, I thought you said your name was Nat. And he says, oh, well, that Simon was just a nickname. Maybe Benny was just a nickname. We don't know. Who knows right. what exactly is true about all that? Yeah. You just kind of piece together little pieces. And, and that, that's a great example. Later on, he, like, a- attacks McCann um, because McCann uses the word Simon to try to snap him out of a funk. Um, he tries to name use use his name Simi, and he gets mad. He says, "You'll never use that name." Yeah, he like <laughs> chokes him, and, and yeah. that's a good example of what we mentioned before, right? That the characters don't have much idea of what the rules are in navigating their behavior with each other. As opposed to a comedy of manners, which you're right, reflects on the negotiations and rules that occur in society where everybody sort of agrees on what the things are, and then a comedy of manners comments on all those things. In this version, let's say it's a comedy of menace, although Pinsford disagrees. Let's say (laughs) that it is. In this world, the rules are totally disagreed upon by everyone, and no one has any idea what they are at any given time. So although Goldberg has called himself Simi on a number of occasions, when McCann calls him Simi, sort of out of the blue late in the play, Goldberg attacks him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so many of the, the I mean, this is prevalent throughout. Stanley just keeps trying to negotiate with these two in into something. And and again, it's hard to it's hard to separate our ambiguity as the audience member versus the character's ambiguity um, and and what they understand. But Stanley keeps trying to push at Goldberg and McCann, but he just can't figure out the rules exactly of what they're exactly there to do to him and how he can get out of it. 
Yeah, so in the interrogation scene, one of the more famous exchanges from that scene, which is just basically pages and pages of questions that seem utterly random and probably just are utterly random. Uh, but one of the more famous in, 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 in exchanges is Goldberg asking Stanley, and I forget the exact number. I'm just going to pick one out of the blue. I know this is not right. But he says, like, is the number 846 possible or necessary? And Stanley tries to answer the question. Now, the right. question doesn't mean anything. That's not, I mean, that, that question has no basis in any sort of logical understanding of, of words or how they relate to each other. I mean, possible or necessary, it's just a number. Who knows? Right. But Stanley does try to participate in answering that question. And he answers it several different ways, but never even comes close to what Goldberg wants to hear. And Goldberg gives some whole spew about how it's necessary but not possible. Is it necessarily possible? Yeah. There's no way to understand what Goldberg is trying to get out of Stanley in that moment. And so Stanley is menaced, right? He's violenced because he's failing to answer these questions that have that have no basis in any kind of rules that we as the audience understand or that even uh, Stanley himself seems to understand. So what do you think that represents, right? Like, I don't want to jump too soon into just trying to figure out this play or trying to interpret some of the things about this play, but but certainly McCann and Goldberg represent something some sort of rule set of of something that they're trying that they're coming in we there there is one other little bit of uh of uh exposition that we get um i think from McCann who says you abandoned the organization to stanley um so so a a uh truth could be Absurdism. Right, again, but it's unverifiable, right? It's right. just in the midst of the interrogation. Yeah. McCann accuses Stanley amidst a whole slew of other accusations that almost surely aren't true. I think it's almost surely not true that right. Stanley killed a wife that he may or may not have had. Right. That seems clearly false, although I wouldn't bet any money on it. Right. But amidst all of those other accusations, there's also this accusation that you abandoned the organization. Yeah. And that one ends up having some ring of uh, possibility to it because it's clear that McCann and Goldberg are from some kind of organization. They're on a team and someone has sent them to do a job and the job involves punishing, interrogating, capturing, hunting Stanley. So there is some kind of organization that they work for with and Stanley is opposed to that organization. So you abandon the organization has some ring of possibility to it. Mm-hmm. So it begs the question, what is the organization? Where are they coming from? What, what, what I mean, what kind of work are these people in? Well, Pinter calls this play one of his first truly political plays. Uh, now, people who study the body of Pinter's work can look back and see the sort of theme of... Uh, oppression and fighting against oppression and being oppressed by an unknown and powerful entity running through much of his work. And of course, Pinter grew up during World War II. He was a Jewish person, lived in Europe, 
grew up in the midst of a really terrible time for people in that situation. There's a great story that he tells that I think illustrates so much of Pinter's idea of communication. He tells it in this interview, and he talks about how when he and his friends, Jewish young Jewish people, would go to like a community center, oftentimes when they would come out, uh, there would be other teenagers that would want to beat them up because of the racial prejudice of the time. And in order to escape this violence, they would, uh, this, these Jewish, young Jewish people would say something like, uh, you know, how's it going? Having a good day? And Pinter says that if they kept up sort of a polite uh, facade of conversation, then they were able to hold off the violent attack until they could get onto a busy street or get onto a bus. Because he said the the sort of English sensibilities of these people who were trying to attack them meant that they had to respond to this conversational questions. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. How about you? They had to have that conversation because of their sense of communication, even though it had nothing to do with what they were trying to do, which was to attack these people. And so you'll hear a story like that from Pinter's childhood about how that really happened to him and happened to him over and over again. And you look at a play like this and you say, oh, okay, well, the communication that's occurring has very, the words that they're saying have very little to do with the violent intentions that exist below the characters, uh, you know, in, below the words, sort of in truly what's going on in the scene. The words often have very little to do with the power plays that are happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's true of both uh, Goldberg and McCann as a unit and Stanley as a unit. They both kind of seem to be Working around something. I don't think, uh, yes, Stanley is the one who is menaced throughout the play. And you can see, I think, exactly what you're describing in that story from Pinter. His trying to negotiate away from that violence just by kind of talking at, at least in the middle of the play, before the interrogation gets really uh, overwhelming for him. Um, I think it's also true, at least early on, of Goldberg and McCann, though. There's something that they are worried about in dealing with Stanley. Certainly McCann is very worried about this interaction. Uh, Maybe Goldberg isn't as much. He kind of comes off with this kind of confident panache throughout most of the play. But McCann is worried about this. Something about Stanley is throwing him off. So you see this kind of poking at the other with words and phrases and actions that seem innocent but are feared by the other. I'm thinking specifically of the sit down all the time. Everyone's trying to get each other to sit down. Um, and that, that ends up being one of the big physical negotiations of the play is who's sitting down, when they're sitting down, and who's standing up and when the other is sitting down. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that McCann is... He's not entirely on board with what's occurring either. In fact, we know from Goldberg and McCann's early conversation, or at least we know as much as you can know anything about (laughs) the facts of what's occurring, that McCann doesn't have all of the information. Only Goldberg holds the knowledge of not only this is what we're here to do, but this is why we're doing it. This is who's told us to do it. McCann is sort of along for the ride. Goldberg says, you know, I was asked to do this job and I sort of picked you as my right hand man. And so McCann is lacking this information and somehow... Stanley knows that. In Stanley and McCann's first interaction, Stanley seems to know that McCann is just the right-hand man and tries to use that to his advantage. Tries to say things like, you don't really know all of what's going on. I don't know what he's told you, but he's not telling you the truth. And so 
even amidst the characters that are aligned in the play, Goldberg and McCann obviously aligned, Meg and Stanley aligned through a lot of the play, even amidst the characters that are aligned, there is a lack of information, a lack of context, which uh, ends up uh, making their plans fall apart at various points throughout the play. Yeah, and, and lack of who's in charge occasionally, too. Like, Goldberg certainly weighs in as the one who's in charge for much of the play. Um, but then there are moments, too, when it's like almost McCann is his handler. Like, McCann is tasked with trying to bring him out of this, like, malaise that he's in after the birthday party and trying to, like, get him to get him to uh, get back in the game. So I agree that the, 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 the lines on who is in control, how they're negotiating with each other, who's on board for who, is fluid throughout. And Stanley... Stanley is actively trying to get McCann to turn. He keeps like trying to get him to um, see how uh, he's being played by Goldberg. He's whistling the same Irish tune that McCann is whistling to try to like identify with him more and get him on his side. So there's there's all these like little attempts at at trying to sway the other um, away from whatever is coming down the pike. And. I think it is probably true. I, I'm he- sort of hesitant about this idea, so I sound hesitant. But I think it's probably true that exactly what is going on, the, all this context that we're used to getting in other plays, a context about the characters, about the situation, knowing specifically the goals, knowing specifically the backstories and how they relate, knowing specifically all the details of a scene, all this stuff that we're used to getting from other plays a lot of the time, that is not so not the point <laughs> of the birthday party, you know? And so it, yeah. it makes it, you know, we could spend this whole hour if we wanted to saying, well, what do you think is going on? Well, what <laughs> yeah. do you think is going on? And we haven't done that yet and we won't yeah. because that, I mean, it's so beside the point. It is because most of what it's doing is evoking a feeling. I think at least, at least for me, as I'm reading this, it's evoking a sense of something um, now, now, what that sense does to you is probably something we could talk about and where the interpretation perhaps lies is like, what is what is this feeling? And and some would say of like, it, it's at least absurdism, <laughs> right? At, at least a feeling of lost and ambiguous, perhaps further into what is this feeling of kind of terror and menace and oppression feeling like as an audience? And what does that move us toward? How do we, what is feeling this feeling do for us as an audience? Cause it's not, it's certainly not an empty experience. It's not just vapidly experiencing action. You, you come out with something, but uh, I think that's where the true interpretation of the play lies. And there are, you know, there are, th- if this play isn't just like, throw a bunch of words on a page and see what happens. There are identifiable features in the script. There are characters at cross purposes. Clearly, what Stanley wants is not what Goldberg and McCann wants. And clearly, by the end of the play, only one of those two groups can succeed in achieving their goal. Whatever the context of the goal is, we don't have a lot of a clear idea. But we do get to see characters at cross purposes use 
tactics and negotiations to try to achieve their goals. And so some of what Pinter does is say all this context stuff, all this detail stuff that you feel like you need to know to understand two characters at cross purposes, two power groups negotiating for who's going to win. All of that is so unnecessary. You can <laughs> boil it down to just people that you know are opposed going at each other and seeing who's going to win. And that is a commentary on power in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And power structures, right? Certain, certainly the, the way that, um, power works often and organizations work that have power is by having a vernacular that they understand. And, and whenever the other or, or uh, uh, any, any group on the outside of that majority group um, approaches it, they either have to learn the language or they're hopelessly lost in, in the kind of blur of this uh, organization's vernacular. And that's some of what's going on in this play is kind of showing off how power, whatever power structures, I think many things could be included in this political power, religious power, societal power, um, community power. However, these groups of power uh, choose to express themselves in the world when you break with them and then try to re-engage, there's a loss of vernacular, there's a loss of understanding, and you're kind of waiting around in this malaise trying to figure out how to get back in, if you need to get back in, or just to try to find a way out to be safe from this power structure. And he he does the same thing with the feelings of family units, right? So there's the organizational jargon and sort of shared experience that Goldberg and McCann have. And we've talked about already some of the ways where that breaks down between them. So there's some breakage between them and there's some ways in which they're very aligned coming from this unit called the organization, perhaps. But Pinter has similar commentary about family units. Although Stanley and Meg and Petey are not family in any sort of blood sense, he's lived there long enough that Meg is clearly very fond of him, calls him her Stanley. And so they have this shared world of experience, this stuff about fried bread, this stuff about his tea in the morning, all this shared jargon and experience that they have that Goldberg and McCann don't. And you see breakage between them as well, places where they're clearly aligned, places where they're clearly not. Mm-hmm. There's also this, there's, there's, a, there's another weird ambiguity there of their relationship, and it's around... A couple references. There's there's one reference where uh, Meg uh, specifically says your playing used to be so beautiful, um, uh, playing the piano. Um, so she's heard him play the piano before. We know he hasn't played in a very long time. Also, at, at the start of the play, there's um, there is a really familial feel to their relationship. This kind of like uh, uh, down on his almost like a down on his luck son who has come home. Um, and is staying in the house. Now, there are other elements that go against that throughout the play. Uh, he seems to be, be uh, protecting them or trying to protect them from Goldberg and McCann as if they are kind of country folk who don't understand the way of the organization. Right. In fact, in the middle of some of the more heated exchanges between Stanley and the Goldberg-McCann duo, Stanley says, you know, I'm not really afraid of you two at all or of the organization at all. What I am afraid of is that you're intruding into Megan P life and they have no idea what's going on and he basically accuses uh, Goldberg and McCann of the fact that Meg and Petey are just going to turn into you know victimized innocent bystanders now 
again, all that's very unverifiable, but that <laughs> yeah. does seem to be true of Stanley, that he's he's concerned about protecting Meg and Petey somehow. And of course, there's all kinds of question marks about Stanley and Meg's relationship. There's this yeah. odd moment where she goes in the very first part of the play, she goes to wake him up and she comes downstairs sort of like flushed and breathing heavily and her hair's all messed up and you're yeah. sort of like, what happened up what? there? And once on? Petey leaves in that act one, there's this whole very suggestive exchange around the word succulent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's all very up in the air. She asks him for a kiss at one point in the play and he, he kisses her. She gives him and then also she gives him this gift, which is like a, a child's drum. Um, so so that. that it's it, that's a mess of a relationship right there. <laughs> You're trying well, to figure. Out. <laughs> it's that yeah. same thing, right? Is that Pinter says something's going on there, and as the audience, we get we know that there is some sort of affection that goes beyond just caretaker and border between the two of them. And the truth is that the details of what, are they actually sleeping together? Is Meg trying to sleep with him and he doesn't want to? Is he uh, just using her for free rent? Whatever is going on, the actual details of it, it may not actually be that important. That's sort of part of what Pinter says, is that all you really need to know is that there's an affection there that goes beyond just a border and the caretaker. And that becomes important in those characters that cross purposes, in the power negotiations between the characters. It's important to know that there's something more between those two. It may not be all that important to know exactly what that is. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's kind of like strips away. Uh, we've we've kind of been saying this already. It strips strips away specifics and just gets you engaged with themes, and 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 through that that like backing up to a meta picture of yes, these two are are allied in some way. You when you negotiate in in different scenes around around uh, conflict, you know that these two are allied in some way, and so you see the power play going back and forth. I think negotiations, the word that you just used, is maybe better than themes. Hmm. He he, yeah. he strips away context and even language to some degree and creates this. I mean, the birthday party is all about the negotiations of power. Every single exchange, every single moment of the play is a negotiation of power between characters. And that's what makes it so freaking engaging because we don't know a lot of the details. And Pinter says, ultimately, those details, you only need to know so much to get the negotiations of power. And the same thing's true of his language, right? We don't know a lot of what they're talking about. We don't know a lot of how the English of what they're saying relates in any way at all to what's really going on in the scene. And Peter says, you know, that's not truly that important. That what they actually say is not as important as how they negotiate power. And so he crafts this power-packed script where page after page power is exchanged and bandied about, but a lot of the things that we're used to in plays are kind of unrelated to those negotiations of power. Yeah, yeah, and 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 how the characters decide to push at each other throughout and what characters they push at each other uh, throughout are wind up having a lot of focus. We, ha we haven't talked about one character who jumps into kind of the center of this uh at all yet i don't think and that's lulu who's uh 
who's like the the neighbor or the community member who's friends with Meg. She comes through a couple times throughout the play. I think she has three scenes, if I remember correctly, um, or three moments where she's on stage. And uh, she kind of moves through these power structures um, kind of and not not without being in them, because certainly she takes parts in events, but she's kind of belongs to something outside of them as well. She's not a part of the family structure. She's not a part of the organizational structure, although she perhaps is trying to negotiate her way into them in some way. Yeah, so Lulu, right, is this friend of Meg's, and she's much younger than many of the other characters in the script. She's, uh, I think we're meant to believe she's sort of an attractive young woman, and she enters and initially tries to get Stanley to go on a walk with her, which he sort of vehemently opposes, and then later in the play, it's her relationship with Goldberg that sort of becomes the focus of what's going on. She attends the birthday party for Stanley, and Goldberg sort of latches on to her right away, and she seems affectionate about him, but then later in that Act 2 birthday party scene, he starts to, uh, like, uh, Fenter uses the word fondles, which I think is a very deliberate attempt to say something that seems uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. I think yep. that's, I think he uses that word because it would be uncomfortable, but who knows. Um, and then in Act 3, she comes back to accuse Goldberg of taking advantage of her in the intervening offstage scene, which is overnight. Yeah, yeah. What what happens at the birthday party that I don't believe we've said specifically yet is a massive lowering of inhibitions. Um, they drink through four bottles of scotch and Irish whiskey um, by, by a certain part of the play. So a lot of the characters have memory loss from the night before. A lot of people's defenses were lowered. And that's that's the biggest the, the, the main uh, anger or the accusation that Meg uh, levels at Goldberg in that last scene is that while my defenses were down, you took advantage of me. Um, and, and, and so, so those Lulu, are, Lulu levels. That thank you. Yes. Lulu yeah. levels that accusation. Yeah. And then there's this weird, like apparently overnight Goldberg came into her room or, or something and he brought in a suitcase or a briefcase that had some sort of device, like <laughs> some sort of sexual device, I guess. And she, uh, w- Used it's, it, they used it, and yeah, now in the next morning, she's really uncomfortable with the idea that that happened and accused him of taking advantage of her, and he is accusing her that, you know, she was the one who tried to initiate it. It's very weird It's confusing. what happened overnight between the two of them. Yeah, it could it could be some sort of like briefcase device. It could be some sort of euphemistic reference. It's it's uh, it's absurd. Okay, <laughs> you you don't you don't and, know and exactly. menacing and uncomfortable. Right? I mean, it, that's exactly right. It's a perfect example of this whole script. It boiled down to that moment is yeah. that it's very <laughs> uncomfortable, <laughs> very menacing, very frightening. I mean, clearly something happened, mm-hmm. and it's very hard to understand the details. And it ultimately boils down to a question of power. Whose fault? So who should take the blame? So who should have power over the other is the core question of that exchange. 
Mm-hmm. There's a great there's a great production on YouTube if you're looking a way to uh, to watch this production. It's it's a completely as far as I can tell a completely legal production of a BBC Four version of the play and and all of their interactions, all of Goldberg and uh, Lulu's interactions throughout the play are that kind of uncomfortable, especially later on through the party. At first, it's very mutually flirtatious, but eventually it gets uncomfortable. So it this at least their relationship continues to add to the. Uh, the ongoing menace of the play. This somehow Goldberg is affecting people um, uh, th- across the board in this kind of menace, whether or not the characters know it or not. So we've said a couple of times that what the characters are saying in their words is not always very related to the meaning of the exchanges between the characters, and that seems clear through the birthday party. However, if you haven't read it and you haven't experienced much Pinter, I don't want to give you the impression that Pinter uses language randomly or unintentionally, because that is clearly not the case. In the birthday party, there's just shy of 700 questions asked. The play is virtually a series of questions. And that is a very intentional choice. And because you brought up the Lulu Goldberg scene, I want to use an exchange from that scene and then one more scene later on as an example of how questions are negotiations of power. It's not necessarily what he's asking, but that the questions are used and how they're used that communicates the real meaning. So... Um, uh, Lulu and Goldberg are going back and forth about what happened overnight. Lulu says, you used me for a night, a passing fancy. Goldberg, who used who? Lulu, you made use of me by, uh, by cunning when my defenses were down. Goldberg, who took them down? Lulu, that's what you did. You quenched your ugly thirst. You taught me things a girl shouldn't know before she's been married at least three times. Goldberg, now you're jumping ahead. What are you complaining about? Three questions as responses in a row. Not answering our accusations, but returning them honor. You can see how the scene is about back and forth of power. Lulu accuses him of something, claims power, and Goldberg, by use of questions, throws the power negotiation right back in her face. Yeah. Later on, Petey, the, the man of the house, tries to step in when they're going to cart Stanley off and says, you know, you can't do that. You can't take him away like that. You shouldn't take him away like that. And Goldberg's response is, why don't you come with us, Mr. Boyles? A question, a menacing, terrifying question, given that they're carting this guy who's been tortured into insanity off. The question, why don't you come with us, is terrifying. <laughs> but it's a question. It's a mm-hmm. way that he bounces that that attempt to claim power by Petey right back in his face. Well, and 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 in general, just in as a conversational rule, a question is a powerful thing, right? Like when you ask a question, you frame the discussion. It's either whatever way you answer the question says something about you. So over and over, I, I believe it's true of both of both Goldberg and McCann, and I think that the, the number 700 questions in this play is incredible. Um, over and over, whenever someone is trying to get them to do something, they just say, why don't you sit down? Why don't you want to sit down? What did you do? Why did you leave? What is this thing? Um, and over and over, they force the other to have to come up with something. Um, and, and often it's in the face of an accusation like Lulu accusing Goldberg, like Stanley accusing them of coming here to take advantage of the people or, or a demand, get out, leave me alone. 
let me get outside, let me get past you. Over and over, all of these are redirected kind of judo, uh, conversational judo with a question, which reframes the engagement. Yeah, so when Stanley's trying to get out of the house, McCann's way, the way basically that he prevents him is basically just to say, why don't you stay? Yeah. Now, this is after he's explained that there's a party going on in his honor and stuff, but it really boils down to that moment where Stanley says, I'm leaving, and McCann says, why don't you stay? And in, in that exchange and in the two I mentioned, it's not the fact of the exchange where the negotiation of power occurs. It's all the context that surrounds it. So it's not just that McCann says, why don't you stay, and that he's some stranger, because, of course, you just ignore that stranger. There's something else going on in that exchange that represents how these two characters are negotiating power. Now, we know from the play that McCann is a very intimidating individual. He's sort of along as the muscle. So it's not the English level, why don't you stay, that is the negotiation of power. It is that he's asking that question and that he's a hulking, a very frightening individual. And that's the question is representative of all the other ways in which he's trying to negotiate power. Similar thing when they're dragging Stanley off and Goldberg asks Petey, why don't you come with us? It's not that he's actually inviting him along, of course. The question is not really related at all to the fact that the question represents their intimidation the threat that you might end up like stanley mm-hmm. yeah yeah the implication of of your answer like what do you if, if if you interpose what what will happen to you and that is something that's familiar on a societal level right like this is a question that we are often asked by representatives of power representatives of oppression what are you going to do about it that's the question that the that they're asking, and if you do something about it, will you end up like them? Um, that that that's a really uh, a powerful or powerful societal uh, application of this story is the people, just the everyday people, are asked this question by power all the time. What is your response to it? Yeah, lots of people nowadays, since the term has started to come into our cultural lexicon more, have talked about the birthday party as a really good example of gaslighting, right, of of creating a new reality for someone, challenging the very perceptions that they have of what's going on in order to confuse and bamboozle and achieve your own goals. And of course, this is what the characters do to each other throughout the whole thing, including characters that in some ways are pitiable, like Stanley, right? When um, in the very first act of the play, Petey is going to go back to work and he has to take off before the tea is done. And uh, uh, poor Meg feels terrible about it. And Stanley basically gaslights her. You're a bad wife because he didn't get his tea. But it's not that she didn't serve him tea. It's just that he had to go back to work before the tea could be done. Yeah. But Stanley, through those questions again, creates this sort of new context, this new reality for what Meg is experiencing. And of course, Goldberg and McCann do that through the whole thing. Right. Yeah. It's interesting when you think about Stanley as as like a former member of the organization to notice those moments as well. Like this is kind of his his old through lines coming through. He can do the same thing, although he's not able to stand up to the barrage of the same thing in the end. Right. Another way that questions are used is that they kind of establish a world that then is later broken down. So at the top of Act One, 
the the exchange between Meg and Petey is largely questions. Meg asks, uh, is that you? Are you back? Uh, she asks, you got your paper. She asks, is it good? What does it say? Will you tell me when you come to something good? I mean, it's virtually all questions. And there's not a whole lot of um, that same kind of menace in that scene, but it sets us up for a very menacing, horrible scene in Act 3. At the top of Act 3, that scene is sort of repeated the next day. Meg asks Petey a series of questions, but there's this new context added where we know that Stanley's been tortured into insanity the previous night. So when she starts to ask questions like, has Stanley come down yet? There's new information that we have now, which provide a new layer of uncomfortable, oh no, experience yeah. to the seemingly innocent questions from act one. That's right. And then it's amplified more in the last moments of the play when Petey knows that Stanley has been carted away and he lies to Meg that he's still upstairs. Same, same a series of questions. Meg comes back from doing shopping and is like, has Stanley come down yet? He's like, no, he's still up there. Uh, <laughs> and and so you just see that the, that relationship continue. These questions trying to have answers. I think Meg is, amongst the questioners, actually curious with her questions most of the time. She's actually wanting some information about them. Um, and, and so in that scene, to have it denied her is, is another kind of turn on the question. We talked earlier sort of like, well, what does all this mean was one of our questions. And there's a, another funny Pinter story of when he was working with a director on the birthday party. And the director asked Pinter, what does it mean that Meg keep keeps asking Petey to read her pieces of the paper. What does that say about their marriage? He was trying to get to sort of a broader theme. What is Pinter trying to say about marriage and human interaction? And Pinter said, you know, I think that she's forgotten how to read. <laughs> <laughs> he answers with not so much a theme or a commentary about marriage, but a character detail. And that is so emblematic of Pinter. He really creates characters and puts those characters into situations where they are, you know, they go back and forth with other people on stage. We've talked about all that negotiation. And the themes, such as they are, which are very interpretable. So the themes, such as they are, they just kind of emerge from these character details that, that you spin around and try to catch on to desperately. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's a great play for that, right? You leave it just kind of questioning everything. You leave it wanting to tap into... What exactly happened on the night of the party? Who exactly, where, where are they taking Stanley? I think this play has a lot, part of the reason why it keeps getting done is how you interpret it has a lot to say about where you are. I think a version of this play could have McCann and Goldberg representatives of government, representatives of religion, representatives of like a psychiatric ward. You could, you could take it that direction and they're trying to bring Stanley back in for something. There's so many applications for this. Like you could do it anachronistically just all over the place because of those constantly wondering questions about character, constantly wondering why this character did, did this at this time versus what they did at a different time. Yeah, and what is so beautiful about the absurdity of this play is that outside of the language and like the situation, 
it's not all that absurd, right? There's never like a llama that randomly <laughs> strolls through the scene, right? It's people in a seaside resort. It's a realistic playing of something that might happen. What's absurd is the exchanges, the relationships, the things these characters end up doing. Like at one point, McCann sits at a table and he's ripping the strips of newspaper, which can be very frightening because he's a very frightening individual. So there's that menacing element that is so commonly talked about with Pinter. It's also absurd because like, what does that mean? Right. What is that a commentary on? <laughs> but it's not supernatural. It doesn't expound the borders of reality in any way, right? He's not like, I don't know, he's not inventing some sort of new technology or, or whatever. <laughs> he's doing something that I've done. I've ripped newspapers into strips. But put into the context of these high-level negotiations of power, it becomes very strange, very odd, very off-putting. Mm-hmm, very ominous. And just the sound of, like, tearing. Uh, one, one production that I watched had it just, like, very slowly happening. Like, he very intentionally, yeah, <laughs> rip, rips paper. Um, yeah, it's 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 unsettling. That that that's that. In addition to the menace, is is kind of the feeling you get is this kind of shaken up, unsettled, a little on edge by the end of the play. Yeah, and of course, one of the things that makes it so ominous is that he's not alone. Stanley, who we know is afraid of these two men, walks in on him doing that and watches him do it for a long <laughs> time. And so, it, you know, it's it's that's a great example. It's not just the absurdity of the action that makes it menacing. It's the relationships between the characters that, true, we don't understand all the details of, but at their core, we understand what we need to know. Stanley is afraid of these two men. These two men have almost surely shown up to find Stanley for a job. And so knowing just those basics of information, when you see Stanley watch McCann sit and slowly, deliberately rip up strips of newspaper, that becomes a very ominous, frightful action to watch but only because of the situation between the characters. Mm-hmm. And also notably, just to tie it back to what we said earlier, it's while Stanley is asking him questions and McCann just doesn't answer. He just continues to rip the paper. So it, it is this like deeply unsettling and counter, counter powerful, counter what we've come to expect from questions in this play move by McCann. Well, that is probably all the time we've got about the birthday party. Yeah. There's so much to talk about. There's so much of Pinter in it. And uh, then there's other things that Pinter's done in other plays, which you don't see as much in the birthday party. So we'll come back to other Pinter plays in the future, I'm sure. And maybe we'll find ourselves comparing that to the birthday party. This is surely um, among the top two, probably most popular Pinter plays. The Homecoming has sort of had a recent resurgence because, of course, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen did it on Broadway in rep with Waiting for Godot just a couple of years ago. So that plays up there nowadays, and there's several. There's the dumb waiter, of course. Um, but Pinter's had such an impact on the way we think about and understand plays. And, you know, his his plays are a study in what's going on beneath the language. And that is, of course, so important in what we now understand in, in the world of writing plays, experiencing drama. And he's he's a genius at creating that level that's below the language. 
And just a goldmine for actors, too, to work on that subtext, to work on inflection, to work on physicality, who's watching who when. This play is just full of opportunities for that. So if, if you are reading the play, if you get a chance to work on the play, if you played one of these characters and, and want to shed some light on our conversation, we'd love to keep talking with you about the birthday party. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. All the usernames there are at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast.com gmail.com find us on any of those sites and we'd love to hear your insights or questions or critiques of what we said about the birthday party hit us up on any of those sites we'd love to keep talking with you absolutely if you know somebody who would like no script and you probably do you probably know folks that like scripts please recommend the podcast to them they can find it on podbean google play apple Podcasts, spotify one of the easiest ways to find it is just to connect with us on facebook we post a link there every monday to the new episode as it comes out so send them that away uh that would be a huge help to us so thank you for that remember we're just a few episodes from the end of the season but we will be back we'll have a a break coming up thank you all for all your support and for being continued listeners yes indeed so until next week when we're talking about another play i am jackson nikolai i am jacob man christensen thanks for listening to no script the podcast we'll see you